All right. Well, thank you so much, Nina, and our Walk Worship team for leading us into this time in the Word today. I hope you're encouraged. I hope you're filled up and charged up because today we're jumping into God's Word, into the book of Ruth. We're in Ruth chapter 4, and this is going to be the 10th and final sermon in this series, and I'm super fired up to dig into it. My name's Hayden Ratner. If you're a first-time guest joining us, I'm just so glad that you're logging on with us. God is not just an on-time God. He's an online God. And for the past two and a half months, we've been online walking through this book, and God has been speaking to us through it. So we're getting ready to close it. But before we do that, I just want to make a quick announcement and just this reminder, kind of what Nina just shared. After the service today, we're going to be doing something for the first time. We're calling it a walk church after party. And here's what an after party looks like. It's going to be me and I'm going to, Nina and I, we're going to invite the different people that spoke in the Ruth series, George, Pastor Ryan, Pastor Mike, myself, and we're going to dialogue about this book, Ruth, and how God spoke to us and some highlight moments, some challenging moments. And we want to invite you to lean in with us. It's going to be live, so feel free to jump in on the comments. We're going to have a screen so we can see your comments, we can hear your feedback, and we can also respond to maybe some questions you have or receive some encouragement as well. So stay on after the service. It's going to be a quick two-minute intermission. Grab your favorite snack, go to the bathroom if you need to, and then jump right back on the screen because we're going to be doing our after party. So put your party emoji in the comment section if you can right now. I look forward to doing our first after party after this service. Also, toward the end, we're going to be taking communion together, celebrating the Lord's Supper, fixing our eyes on Christ. So make sure you have your elements prepared as well. All right, come on, take a deep breath. Woo! We're jumping into Ruth chapter four. All right, so let me pick it up right where we left off last week in verses 14 and 15. If you're ready, say ready. Come on, if you're hungry, you know what to say. Type in the comments. Come on, if you're with somebody, give them a high five and tell them, let's eat, let's eat. Father, before we eat from your word, Lord, speak to us now. Open our hearts. Make the gospel clear for us. Teach us your word. Transform us through your word in Jesus Christ's name for Jesus Christ's fame. Amen. Amen. Ruth chapter four, verses 14 and 15. The text tells us, then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. I just wanted to highlight this moment, right? We just see, we've just Come, come into this moment where it's powerful. It's a party, right? We've, we've made it through pain. We've moved on to potential. Chapter two, went into the process of all that takes place to get to this moment of praise. Why praise? Well, we just saw Ruth and Boaz get married. It was powerful. There was a bunch of witnesses there. The women of the town come through. And then not, not long after that, we see that Ruth and Boaz go on a honeymoon. Come on, somebody, right? They did what married people do. And the result was this baby, that God opened up Ruth's womb to give birth to a baby boy. His name is Obed, right? We see that in the text and and it's a praise moment. And we see these women in the town come and show up. And the woman said to Naomi in verse 14, look at these. I just want to highlight a few things on the screen. The woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord. They wanted to give God praise, Right? We, should, we should go out throughout our day looking for moments to give God praise. 
right? I'm sure God has done something for you in this day alone that's worthy of praise. They say, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. So highlight that phrase redeemer. If you're, you're reading this with your word open, highlight the word redeemer. It means to, to buy back, to restore. They, they tell Naomi, they say, hey, look, God's not left you without. He, he's never left you at all. He's actually provided for you a redeemer and may his name be renowned. These women are now speaking praise and prophetic life-giving statements over this redeemer. They say, may his name be famous depending on the translation you're reading. May his name be renowned in Israel. And he shall be to you a restorer of life. They're saying, Naomi, you got a grandbaby. He's gonna restore your life even. This grandbaby is gonna bring a, a new sense of nourishment. Notice that phrase, nourish of your old age, right? That's one of the reasons why grandbabies are called grandbabies. It's because they're grand, Amen. Come on, all the grandmas that are watching this right now, just give me an amen. Tell them, yeah, that's right, right? How about Naomi? A few chapters earlier, she was still stuck in pain. She told everybody, she said, look, don't even call me Naomi. My, that name means pleasant, but I'm not pleasant, I'm bitter. But no, she's not bitter at this point, she's grand. Why is she grand? Because she's grandma Naomi and she's holding this baby and she is in love. Not only a nourisher for her old age, but your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. In the ancient day in Israel, this could be the greatest compliment you could give somebody, that this baby is gonna be more to you than seven sons? Think about that word. Mind you that Naomi, when she left in chapter one, right, her two sons passed away, Malon and Chilion. And now she has this grandbaby and these women of the town are speaking prophetic life-giving words over Naomi. And friend, let's just learn from these women. Let's, let's take more time to speak life-giving words over our church family, over our friends and family. We move on from verse 15 into verse 16. And the text says, then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Interesting verse right here. We, we're, we're focusing in on Naomi. She, she takes this child, Obed, right? this baby from Ruth and Boaz, and she became his nurse. The CSB translation, the Christian Standard Bible says, Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and became his nanny. Shout out to the nannies, right? The NIV translation says, Naomi took the child in her arms and, and cared for him. So we see Naomi being his nurse, nanny, and caring for this baby. I love it right here. I, I, maybe Ruth and Boaz are on this extended honeymoon, or maybe they're just having more intentional time together, but there's something about Naomi here that's getting this intentional time with her grandson. Verse 17 says, the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. I love this right here. Maybe you've heard this. It takes a village to raise a child, right? How about this village came around Naomi and they named the baby? I just think it's really profound that they said, this should be the name of the baby. And they listened to these women. They said, his name is Obed. The name Obed can be translated in two different phrases. One could be a servant of the Lord. Another could be a worshiper of the Lord. Either way, he was a worshiping, serving leader named Obed. He believed in servant worship, right? He believed in, I'm gonna serve God with my worship. My worship is gonna be serving, <laughs> right? And this was Obed and praise God for him. They spoke this name over him. And then they, 
they use this really neat phrase. Verse 17, they say, a son has been born to Naomi. The son wasn't born to Naomi necessarily, right? The son was born to Ruth and Boaz. But I think just the narrator, the author of this book is trying to help you and I see that God is a full circle God. Why do I say that? Here's why I say that. Because this book opens with Naomi's nightmare, all right? That's why we have the pain box there to represent chapter one. Naomi's nightmare is all wrapped up into chapter one. Three funerals in a row, husband dies, son dies, son dies, in a land that's foreign, Moab. And the author's trying to get you to see that if you take that step of faith, God's gonna meet you on that journey. He's gonna bring you full circle. We, we see the book open up as Naomi's nightmare. We see the book close with Naomi's redemption. Right, the book closes here with Naomi with the grandbaby. All she knew for 10 years was death. Now she's getting to know life again. They speak this over her. The minute that Naomi repented, the, min- the minute that Naomi said, I'm leaving my Moab, I'm going back to my God, God says, there's so much potential in this process that's gonna lead to praise. God has more for Naomi. She realized it, God has more for her. In fact, not only did Naomi realize it, but Ruth realized it too. Ruth said, hey, if God has more for Naomi, my mother-in-law, he has more for me, I'm gonna follow her, I'm gonna place my faith in her God and her people will become my people and Ruth follows along. But with that said, I do find it interesting, maybe you do as well, that this book is is named after this foreign woman named Ruth. This book is, is named after Ruth, yet the book closes, we don't see Ruth anywhere. In these last few verses, what happened to Ruth? Ruth and Boaz have kind of disappeared from the storyline. And, and I really believe it's because we're seeing the full circle God at work. Right, Ruth and Boaz, they're living their life right now. They're enjoying this season of being married. God restored them. And yet the focus here is on Naomi with her grandbaby. I like how Sinclair Ferguson, author and theologian, says in his commentary, he just says, in this last glimpse of Naomi, she is sitting with Boaz and Naomi's son, Obed, in her arms, He's a handful for this once empty-handed grandmother. I don't know if you remember that statement from Naomi when she came back home. She said, I I left here full. I came back empty. And the once empty-handed Naomi is full of love and grace in this state. Now, as I read this, and I hope you would maybe see it with me, if I would see this as a movie, and I think the movie Ruth would be fascinating to see, I just hope they would do some good acting and high budget. Can I get an amen from somebody? Yeah, I know what I mean. All right, keeping it going, right? If this was a movie, right, I could see at this point there would be some nice music kind of fading into the background and then the screen would light up with these words. And they lived happily ever after. And then all of a sudden the credits would appear on the screen. if, If there was a song that was being played, I think it would be this song right here. Maybe you know this song right now. Best is yet to come, and babe, won't that be fine? Come on, you know this song. You know a little Frank Sinatra. The best is yet to come. I think that would be the song because when we open up the book of Ruth, we see that the best is still to come. When you end the book of Ruth, 
you also see that the best is yet to come. Here's why. Because maybe you're thinking right now, hold on, the story's not complete yet. There's still five and a half more verses. We, we just stopped at 17a, but 17b all the way through 22 still is, is yet to be touched. We're, we're getting there because the best is yet to come. Come on, just say that right now. The best is yet to come. If you're with somebody right now, look at them and say, the best is yet to come. The title of this sermon right now is The Best is Yet to Come. Come on, it's August in 2020. Look at me through the screen and say, The Best is Yet to Come. Come on, talk to me right now. The Best is Yet to Come. Uh, you might be in pain, but the best is yet to come. You might be in potential, but the best is yet to come. You might be in process. Come on, you might be in, I feel I'm in process, but the best is yet to come. You might be in praise, but the best is yet to to come, and you got to remember that we see that here in this beautiful love story called Ruth. The best is yet to come. Let's keep on reading. It says that Obed in verse 17b, it says, he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Hold on now. Did you catch that? It says that Obed was the father of Jesse, was the father of David. This, this is a moment where the narrator's trying to help us see something. Here's what the narrator's trying to help us see. I don't know if you've ever seen like an Avengers movie or uh, a Marvel movie and what happens right when the credits come on the screen. You know, you watch the, the black and white, the, the different people that contributed to the story. But then all of a sudden there's a, a random scene that jumps on and it's like, here's what happens next in the story. And everybody's like, oh snap, grabbing somebody. Wait, there's more to the story. Right? There's more for us to see. Wait, don't leave yet. Stop. Don't walk down the stairs yet. Look, there's another future scene that's going to come. This is what the narrator's doing right now. This is what the author of Ruth is trying to help us see, saying, hey, this story is great, but the best is still to come. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean, right? So, so you see Ruth and, and Boaz, they give birth to this baby boy named Obed, but Obed would one day have a wife himself and they would give birth to a baby named Jesse and Jesse would grow up and then he would get married and that he would have a son whose name was David. Yes, David the king. David the one who wrote Psalm 23. David the one who slayed Goliath. David the one who had fascinating repentance, who didn't live a perfect life, not by any means, but he, he could continue to progress in his life and continue to, to, to fall, but get back up again. David, the greatest king Israel ever knew, David that leads to the Messiah Jesus would come from Obed and Ruth. The best is yet to come, my friend, right? That, how about this? David's great grandma is Ruth. I, I, this is blowing my mind. The author tells us that these are the generations of Perez. Perez, verse 18, fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Ram, and Ram fathered Aminadab, and then Aminadab fathered Nashon, and Nashon fathered Salmon, and Salmon fathered Boaz, and Boaz fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. It's fascinating to see the text tell us that there was 10 generations that led up to this moment. Now, come on, just say the number 10 with me. 
If you got comments, just write the number 10 in the comment section right now because there's something about this number 10 in this story. Now, I'm not big when it comes to numbers. I don't like to get too much into conspiracies or theories regarding numbers. I'm not that guy, all right? But I'm recognizing here that the number 10 is on display in this story. What do I mean? Well, we find that Naomi and her family was in Moab for 10 years, barren and experiencing death and experiencing struggle. 10 years on the run from what God had for them. But now we see 10 generations that lead up to this baby boy. Not only that, but we find in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse three, a word written in the law toward Moabites, which was Ruth. Here's the word. The text says that no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. Right, so there's this law putting in place that, that God's making it very clear that the people that come from Moab, right, that come from this paganistic religion, Moab by name comes from an incestuous relationship that's found in Genesis chapter 19 with, with Lot and his daughters. That's where the name Moab came from. This is where Ruth comes from. And yet God is using this woman from Moab and placing her in the line of David, which is placing her in the line of Christ. The best is yet to come. In Warren Wearsby's commentary on the book of Ruth, he says it like this. He says, the Moabites were, were not to enter the congregation of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. He goes on to say, but the little book of Ruth closes with a 10 generation genealogy that climaxes with the name of David. Never underestimate the power of the grace of God. Can you believe it? I'm still trying to figure out how this happened that Ruth would become David, King David's great grandmother. Friend, hear me with this, that, that this, my friend, is not just a great love story. The book of Ruth, poetic, beautiful, a love story indeed, but it's not just a great love story. Hear me when I say this, that this is a story that is pointing us to a greater reality and love story about God himself. That the book of Ruth is, is mainly about God sending his son Jesus to redeem us from our sin and to pay our sin penalty and debt, which would ultimately separate us from God himself and result our lives in an eternity away from him in a place called hell. The best is yet to come because the story doesn't end at Ruth and Boaz. The story goes on to, to lead us to a savior. The story goes on to lead us to a bigger and better redeemer who will far outlast Ruth, who will far outlast Boaz, who will far outlast Obed, who will be perfect in all of his ways. And he has a name, my friends. His name is, come on, say it with me, Jesus. This story is primarily here to point us to Jesus. I mean, I want you to just consider this for a second. Just consider the correlations the book of Ruth has with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about it like this. Boaz takes all of Naomi and Ruth's poverty and reputation and history upon himself, and he in turn credits his riches and his inheritance and his family name to them. In comparison, Jesus takes all of 
our sin and all of our shame and all of our darkness and all of our past, he takes that upon himself through his life, death, and resurrection. And in turn, he credits us with his love, his righteousness, his mercy, his grace, his favor, his forgiveness. We see this great exchange. What a love that God has for us. We see this on display. You might say, where? Show me where it shows that Jesus is a greater redeemer. Well, let me give you a few passages. I love what Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians 1.7. He says, in him, who's him? Boaz, no. Obed, no. Hayden, no. Here's who him is. Him is Christ. In him, we have, say it with me. Come on, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, all of us are trespassers. We have trespassed against God in his law and we have broken his commandments in one way or another. We've belittled him. We have robbed God of his glory. We have trespassed against his righteous reign and rule. And because of that, we deserve death, but our God chooses to redeem us according to the riches of his grace. Colossians chapter one, verse 13 and 14. Come on, listen to this language for a moment says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Praise God for that. He has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have, say it with me, come on church, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, right? Now notice in this genealogy at the end of Ruth 4, right, we, we see this on display. We see Jesus as a redeemer. We see God as a redeemer. And it, and it starts in verse 18, but I'm gonna make this point a little bit more clear. Just, just stay with me, right? Verse 18, now these are the generations of Perez. We're going back 10 generations. And we're going somewhere because the best is yet to come, right? Perez, Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nishan. Nishan fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David, right? And what we see here in the book of Ruth, chapter four ends right there at 22. Obed fathered Jesse and Jesse fathered David. It's like, that's the max. We, 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 we stop right there because there's nothing left at this point in the book of Ruth. But let me tell you how good God is. Come on, lean in with me for a second. The story doesn't end there. Ruth 4 picks up in Matthew 1. Right? Ruth 4 actually finds its way. Just go ahead and step into the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, into Matthew chapter 1, and you, f you find where this book continues because the best is yet to come. Come on, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Are you there? Come on, no, for real, go there with me. Let's look at it together right now. Matthew chapter one, starting in verse one. Here we go. Come on, look at it with me. Let's do this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. The, the, and Judah, the father of Perez. Here's where we're at, right? We're here in Ruth chapter four. Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. We just read that. Ram, the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab, the father of Nishan. And Nishan, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Er, can I just stop for one moment? Did you just hear that? 
Some of y'all need to do some better Old Testament Bible history, freshen up on that. Did you know that Salmon, the father of Boaz, was married to Rahab? Come on, somebody, if you're with somebody who doesn't know their Bible, get, put them on game, help them know who Rahab was. Rahab is the young lady found in the book of Joshua in those first couple of jobs. She was a prostitute. She became a spy for the people of Israel. She was a foreigner as well. And God showed her grace and mercy because she looked out for God's people. She had a whole track record of a past, but God spared her life because she trusted in him. And she met this cat named Salmon and they hit it off and had a baby they got married. The baby's name is Boaz. Oh my goodness. We're seeing God all over the place in this text. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. We're still in Matthew 1. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And that's where we stop in Ruth 4, but it picks up here, doesn't it? Come on, let's keep on reading. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. There's a whole bunch more names, right? If you ever if you ever get stuck with the names, just read it fast. People won't know the difference, all right? But let me go ahead and fast forward from Uzziah into verse 16. You can read the rest of the genealogy in Matthew 1 just to save you some of those names. We'll jump right into verse 16, which says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. That Ruth chapter 4 is a bridge my friend, to Matthew chapter one. That if you just stop at Ruth four, you've missed it. Friend, you've missed it, right? Because that, that sneak peek preview when the credits come on points you to Jesus, right? What do we see in that closing moment? Like, hold on, stay in your seat, watch this. You see the Messiah come forth in the same land of Bethlehem and his name is Jesus. Jesus means Yeshua, which means Savior, Savior. One thing I love about Jesus's genealogy is the author Matthew here is very careful to represent five women in the genealogy of Christ. Did you hear those different names, right? Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And those first three are foreign women, right? Tamar has a completely bizarre story in the book of Genesis. If you want to go back and read it it, it, it is complicated to say the least. But but Tamar finds herself in Jesus's genealogy. Not only that, but Rahab the prostitute, this foreigner, is found in Jesus's genealogy. Ruth the Moabite is found in Jesus's genealogy. Bathsheba, who committed adultery with David the king, is found in Jesus's genealogy. Mary the young woman found in Bethlehem in Matthew 1 is found in Jesus. What's Jesus trying to help us see? He's trying to help us see that imperfect people that have a past of sin like me and you can still have a place in God's story. If Tamar can have a place and be used by God, so can I, right? If Bathsheba can have a place, so can you. If Ruth the Moabite can have a redemption story and come from Moab, but wind up in Bethlehem and marry Boaz, God can do miraculous things in your life 
to if you trust him, if you walk with him, if you say, Jesus, I'm going to move from my pain into potential, trust the process, then God, I'll give you the praise. That's what we see in the book of Ruth that points to a glorious Savior, a better Redeemer. His name is Jesus. I like how John Bloom says that he's an author and writer for Desiring God, and he says it like this. He says, people tend to conceal the more disgraceful events and people in their family, but not Jesus. He chooses to highlight possibly the five most scandalous women in his lineage. God weaves his grace throughout the Bible, even through the genealogies. God loves to redeem sinners. Can I get an amen? He, he loves to produce something beautiful out of sordid family backgrounds. He loves to make foreigners his children and reconcile his enemies. He loves to make all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, as it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Friend, what does this all tell me? What does this all tell you? Hopefully it tells you that, that Jesus is a greater redeemer that the Redeemer that our eyes should be fixed upon should be Jesus. In the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke, when you see Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, when Zechariah goes to write his prophetic poem, he says it like this. The first things he says is, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. The Redeemer is not David. The Redeemer is not Obed. The Redeemer is Christ. Now, now these, these, these different people can play and serve as lowercase r Redeemers, but the, the capital R Redeemer, the one who can save you and I, is Christ. The, the word redeem by definition, the Oxford Pocket Dictionary definition is to gain or regain possession of something in exchange for payment, or as the Webster's Dictionary defines very simply, to buy back. The word redeem means to buy back. Jesus, my friends, bought us back. He, he bought us with a price. What was the price? His blood, his life. Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live, and then he died a sinner's death on the cross. He died my death. Friend, he died your death so that you could be saved, so that Jesus could redeem you. Redeem you from what? Redeem you from the curse. The curse of Adam's sin, the curse of Eve's sin, the curse that would send us to hell. Jesus redeems us. He buys us back. He rescues us from the slaughter. He rescues us from eternity because of our sin debt. Jesus steps in and rescues sinners like me and you. Show me where. Let me show it to you. Galatians chapter 3. Starting in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 23, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. So then in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Gentiles were non-Jewish people so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Friend, Jesus Christ came to redeem us. He came to redeem 
you. He came to redeem me. He came to, re- to buy us back, to restore our lives through our faith in him. And, and, and friend, he can't buy us back unless he gives everything, unless he sheds his blood in our place. Because if Jesus doesn't die for me, I have to die for me and I'm not righteous. I'm not holy. The only righteousness and holiness that I possess comes from my faith and posture and position in Christ the Lord. So right now, here's what I want us to do. I want us to have an intentional moment where we together look backwards at Jesus. Right, right. Ruth and Boaz, they were looking forward to the best is yet to come. Well, right now, I want us to look backwards and I want us to celebrate the redemption we have in Christ through an ordinance called the Lord's Supper, where we partake in this communion right now, where we commune with the Savior, the Redeemer, by partaking in a piece of bread and a drink, symbolizing what Jesus did for us on the cross. Let me read it to you as we get ready to get our elements prepared. I'm going to go ahead and grab my piece of bread and my drink right now. You can just grab a piece of bread, some juice. And Paul writes to the Corinthian church instruction on communion. Here's what he says. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he, he took a piece of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He says, remember me by taking a piece of bread and breaking it to remember that Jesus's body was broken for our sin. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He goes on to say this, and I just want you to catch it. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I want to encourage you right now to get your bread out, to get your cup out, and I want to lead us in a moment of examination where you just begin to examine your life Kind of like if you were going through the security station at the airport and you see that big moving door, it begins to examine you to see if you have anything that causes an alarm. Right now in this moment of examination, ask yourself, ask the Lord, ask the Holy Spirit, ask the Bible and say, examine me. Is there any sin in my life? Is there any relationships that aren't right? Is there anything that I need to do as far as it depends on me to be right with God before I partake in communion? And I want you to do that right now. I want you to have just a moment of meditation, a moment of reflection. And in doing so, when you're ready, go ahead and grab the cup, go ahead and grab the bread and partake in communion together. What we're gonna do right now is I'm gonna ask our worship leader, Vashon, to join me in a time of reflection, in a time of singing, in a time of praise where he's going to sing over us a song of redemption in Christ. And so I want you to sing with him. I want you to sing to the Lord. 
about how God has set you free. And when you're ready, partake in the Lord's Supper when you're ready. Father, I pray right now as we go into this time of worship and reflection, as we examine our hearts and lives, that Jesus, you would do that. You would reveal to us anything we need to let go of or surrender. If we need to make a phone call or send a message, I pray we would do it. If we need to turn away from sin or confess sin to to you, Jesus, I pray we would do that. If we need to confess sin to somebody else for healing and prayer, as it says in James 5, 16, I pray we would do that. But God, as we approach your table right now, I pray we would do it with reverence, holiness, humility, and joy. For we have a redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen.